City University Television presents The American Theater Wing Seminars Working in the Theater This seminar, The Drowsy Chaperone Hello, I'm Sandra Gilman, Chairman of the American Theatre Wing, with our Board President, Doug Leeds. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars. We'll be back later in this program to tell you about the American Theatre Wing. But right now, let's join our distinguished panel. It is not often that a wedding present becomes a Broadway musical. It is also very rare that a completely Canadian musical reaches Broadway. But in the case of The Drowsy Chaperone, that is exactly what's happened. The new musical Drowsy Chaperone is both an homage and a parody to classic musicals from the 1920s. And today, we're going to spend time finding out about how that show came to the stage. We have a tremendous panel of people who have been part of making this show happen. Let me introduce them all to you now. First. We begin with Roy Miller, one of the show's producers. Then we have Greg Morrison, music and lyrics. Lisa Lambert, music and lyrics. Bob Martin, book writer and also leading actor playing the man in the chair. <laughs> Casey <laughs> Nicola, who is both the director and the choreographer. Don McKellar, also writer of the book of the show. And finally, Kevin McCollum, another of the show's producers. We'll be joined later in the program by two members of the company of Drowsy Chaperone as well. I hope that my opening was sufficiently tantalizing to have people say, a wedding present? <laughs> so I want to turn to the man whose wedding became the Drowsy Chaperone. And Bob, if you can just tell us the story of your friends ganging up to celebrate your wedding, you and Janet Vandegraaff. Yes. Well, I want to correct you, first of all. In Canada, it's quite common for wedding gifts to become Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> Get that out right away. No, it, it has been uh, uh, an extraordinary journey. And uh, it started, um, I was getting married in 1998 to my wife, Janet Vandegraaff, who's an actress. And I asked uh, Lisa Lambert, who was my best man, to... Uh, Is that also common in Canada? <laughs> I don't think. I think it was a unique thing. And uh, I, I asked her to, uh, to take care of the stag. It's one of her, her stag, or bachelor, bachelorette party, as you Americans call it. And, and uh, I asked her to take care of the entertainment. And um, so she really told me nothing about what she was planning. And then Janet and I saw an ad in a local paper for a show at a, a club in downtown Toronto called the Rivoli. And uh, the show was called Oh, What a Pair, <laughs> which was a kind of uh, inside joke ab uh, about a fake show title that we had suggested for a, uh, <laughs> an awkwardly titled show. <laughs> oh, it's a hilarious joke amongst my friends. Um, but uh, the evening was called Oh, What a Pair, and it consisted of two acts, the first act being sort of stand-up routines and, and sort of a little comic uh, sort of uh, moments where friends from the theater community and comedy community sort of did a little tribute to, to myself and my wife. And, uh, and then the second half was something called The Drowsy Chaperone, which was about 40 minutes long, and it was basically 
a 20s uh, musical. <laughs> and, Fully costumed. And it was Greg and Lisa and Don who'd cooked this, this whole thing up? Uh, yeah, it was the three of us, plus there was a, a group of, um, of uh, comedy people and theater people who were friends of ours in Toronto who were part of this whole thing, too. We all kind of cooked it up together. And originally thought of as being a one-night event. Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, yeah. Unless you were going to get remarried. Right, yeah. <laughs> it was originally thought of as, as sort of a one-off thing. You know, um, our, our little community of people, we used to put, create sort of um, fake musicals. That's <laughs> just uh, as a hobby? Well, we were all performers, and we would perform them at places like the Rivoli and at the Fringe Festival. Uh, you have a New York Fringe, and our Toronto Fringe is very similar to that. So we would do little shows like that. Uh, Drowsy Chaperone, though, came out simply out of uh, love from mm -hmm. my friends directed it at us. And, um, uh, but it, I think that's one of the reasons why it, 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 was, it was so good when we first saw it, because the humor was not directed at any particular market, but but at, at our own circle of friends. And uh, Janet and I saw it and said, well, we want to do something with this show. Uh, we want to share it. So um, we sort of uh, expanded it for the Fringe of Toronto. Don and I wrote a book, which then included the character of Man in Chair, who, who narrates this show and provides think, a perspective on it. I think music. we realized that when we saw it, that it was, like we said, it was for the community and it was a weird little standalone musical. And we thought it was very funny, but we realized that it, we needed some perspective on it for other people to understand and to allow them to laugh at it. So I think Lisa and I came up with this idea of Bob actually being in it because, of course, he wasn't in it. Well, I was going to say, was it a case of, you know, he, you did this wonderful thing for him and Janet, and then one day he turned to you and said, but I have some notes? Or, well, no, he was, he was joking. He yeah, he came, on, he came on stage uh, at the Rivoli after the show and said, what a wonderful show, I have some notes. <laughs> and, um, that's just the kind of person that's I That's just am. the kind of person, <laughs> he, sarcastic person he is. Um, no, actually, we had to sort of force him to play this part <laughs> because um, when we expanded the show for The Fringe, we thought we would just write in some more quirky 1920s characters and, you know, Bob would play a mentalist or something, you know. And then it's like, no, somebody has to be... Funny the minister, here. the <laughs> rector, I think, would have been the obvious choice. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Let's take a moment and explain that the premise of the show is that we're watching a diehard fan of classic musicals alone in his apartment, the man in the chair, played by Bob, who begins to play for us, the audience, selections from this classic musical of the 20s, The Drowsy Chaperone. And to be clear, there's no such musical. No. Um, there is now. Or is there? <laughs> exactly. Or is there? Or is there? Does PDQ Bach exist? <laughs> so, what was the process? Because if it was just songs from this fake musical, how did you all begin to say, okay, let's layer more on it? Well, it's, it's, we had had discussions like that um, before we created The Drowsy Chaperone. We had had discussions about how do we, cre how do we present um, musical material from that period without it just appearing to be parody, because we weren't interested in doing a parody of musicals of the 20s. Uh, and so we always wanted to provide some kind of perspective on the musical material we were presenting. And, and so we came up with this idea of uh, an avid theater fan as a way to sort of deconstruct uh, entertainment of that period and compare it to contemporary musical theater. So it's it sort of, uh, you have to understand, I wasn't resistant because I didn't get it. 
I was resistant because I, <laughs> I thought the show was so good. <laughs> I didn't want to distract. I literally thought that people would be going, oh, shut up. We want to watch numbers. <laughs> and that didn't turn out to be the case. Well, <laughs> in its very earliest form, was there a book or was it ser simply oh, a series? It was an actual little book musical. It was a really strange anomaly. I think, I think people imagine, oh, it was at a bachelor party. It was probably just skits with strippers and things like that. It wasn't like that. It was really weird. It just shows what a weird group of friends we were. It was an actual musical with a book and all, basically the plot of the musical you see now. The same Pretty characters, well the same. basically. Now, the, now the product has changed dramatically, obviously, mm -hmm. since then, and there are only two musical numbers from the original Gift that are still mm -hmm. in yeah. the show. So, in, in any fact, form. there is cut material from the Drowsy Chaperone that could oh. then be unearthed. Reams, reams <laughs> of cut material. Yes, because this has been an eight-year journey, and and the the Broadway version of the show is really a. A complete, it's completely reconceived in many ways. And it's, it's, it's what, what early on in the journey, in the development of the show, we knew that in order for the show to truly be effective, the musical within the show had to be fully realized um, with great voices, great dancers, great costumes, and, and, and also the set of the show. Uh, we realized that the man's world had to transform to the musical world, not to give too much away about that. Are we supposed to give stuff away about the show at this point? It's well, open at this point. We, we, yeah, it's <laughs> open, yes. Okay, okay. Um, but yeah, so... So we so did we, do other productions, that should be said. We did a remount at a sort of off-Broadway type theater in Toronto, and then we did a fairly big production at Winter Garden Theater in Toronto. Uh, and in each one, we really drastically revised and adapted. Uh, but it, oddly enough, the natural place was probably the end place, which was Broadway, because it was about uh, a man imagining Broadway. So um, it's a strange outside perspective. And you said it was Canadian, but uh, I, I think you know, it's Canadian and that we're Canadian the writers, but it's not a, really a Canadian show. Uh, it's because we have American money. <laughs> 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 and we have American uh, a director, Creative team, obviously, yeah. but we have also... Um, we really recreated it in a way for this cast for Broadway, which was something we could only, of course, sort of suggest or imagine. Or, so instead of being this sort of um, uh, fantasy about Broadway, it became this kind of uh, recreation of Broadway. Well, before we get into where it is now, I want to spend a few more minutes talking about how it moved along. In terms of the songwriting for the show, you said, Bob, that you, know, you didn't want it to be a parody of American musicals, but were there models that you were looking at? How did you look at shows of that period, and, and were you trying to do very specific shows, or was it just a feeling that you immersed yourself in cast albums of things like Very Good Eddie? It was broader at first. I mean, that's, if anything, the biggest evolution of, I think, the score, is that it was probably the original score actually spanned uh, greater periods. You know, the songs were more like a 40 song or a 30 song or 20 song. And as the show developed, that was one of the things that the score honed more into identifying specifically as a 1928 show. So that was a big element of the score. I mean, one, one of the things we loved about the period was that there isn't a lot of documentation, of course. People obviously haven't seen the show. I, I trust no one's seen a lot of shows from the 20s in themselves. And, of course, there are not really a lot of cast albums. There are no really intact cast albums for, for that exact period, and then uh, at least American ones. 
Uh, and um, there, there's not even films, really. There are just beginning to be films suggesting that period. There's films of good news and, uh, you know, um, heads up. And there's a couple, and coconuts and uh, animal crackers and things like that. But there's very few actual real documents. And that was, of course, very liberating for the writers because we were able to suggest it. And this show is really about an evocation. We're seeing the show through the ears of this man, imagining what it might have been like. So, yeah, we did a bit. I mean, we researched. We've seen it was the show time. through the ears of this man. Yes. <laughs> never actually heard it described before. <laughs> it's good. It's good. Uh, I mean, we're seeing, uh, you know, there was a time I was reading Guy Bolton librettos and things like that, and there, there were some sh influences from shows, and certainly influences from movies of the period. Yeah, movies. But, yeah. but it's not a, an archival thing. It's not an academic yeah. piece. Yeah. And as it was moving along on its journey in these venues in Canada, because clearly we, there is a new creative team here for the American production that began out at the Amundsen and is now here on Broadway. Who was directing the show at that time? How was it being developed? Were you primarily guiding it yourselves or were there other people involved? No, we had a series of directors. Um, the, the first, uh, the, the Toronto Fringe production was directed by a man named Steve Morell, who was also part of our company of performers, but he had directed as well. Um, the second off-Broadway style, Pass Marai, was directed by Sandy Belkowski, who was um, uh, a director at Second City, where I came from. And so she was working with the comedians in that sense. And that, that, that particular staging, actually, we discovered quite a bit. And then Winter Garden was directed by, um, I guess you'd describe him as an avant-garde theater director in Toronto named Daniel Brooks. And so that was an odd production. <laughs> well, you see that. <laughs> I think you're suggesting uh, something that is a little I was more. <laughs> <laughs> but you say that you discovered things. What were the discoveries along the way? What did you find from where it began to where you wanted to take it? Well, at oh, each stage, yes, go ahead. A lot of it is this that we just really sort of fleshing out the score more and more, which is sort of. And working with that particular cast, I mean, that's how we developed the show, too. Who, who, it's honed a lot to the people who are performing the roles, which is very much the style of the piece itself. So that certainly had a lot of influence on it. As we, 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 we sort of write in an odd way, and it, which yeah. has been preserved right up to the Broadway thing, and that we all sort of contribute. We all sit around and come up with ideas. And Greg and Lisa have, have an influence on the script, and I, and I dare say Bob and I have influence on the songs. Someone, yeah. So it's a, a little small, <laughs> small little bit. So, uh, and K we, Casey, too. And, is, is and of course, and each time we work yeah. with yeah. Uh, the directors, and particularly in this case with Casey, I would say. Um, and I would say, actually, one of the biggest evolutions is the character of the man in chair, which is really, we realized early on that he was really the lead character. And, and in a way, his story is, is the real arc, the story arc of the script. And we've really been honing that throughout. Uh, it's like a one-man show with a musical in, in a it. way. Yeah. yeah, in a way. That's right. And it's, it's a part of the fun of the show is the story within the musical is actually very slight. Mm -hmm. The story of his life intentionally. Is, yeah, intentionally. Slight. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. The story of the man is is extremely complicated, really, and we only give a hint of it of, his, of the sort of things that have happened in his life and how he got to the point. It's a funny thing because it's sort of covert storytelling. We're just suggesting things about him, and by the end you realize, oh, I really know that guy pretty well. I guess but what we're <laughs> saying is it's really quite a brilliant show. Yes, <laughs> and it also provides a wonderful opportunity for the sequel, Man on yeah. Couch. Yeah. <laughs> Man in Man hospital bed. <laughs> well, this seems an opportune moment to take a moment and uh, give our audience a little glimpse, its first glimpse, of the drowsy chaperone. I can't wait. Clear the floor, boys. I'll show you how it's done. First you beat it up, then you sweet it up. 
when you heat it up if it tries to rise don't let it Talita surprise surprise wait until it's ready Now I'd like to bring in more of our panel, and I think, Roy, you are the natural person to bring in next. You are an American producer. You were on the staff of Paper Mill Playhouse, and you heard about a show in Toronto. And as you said to me before we began today, many producers have a hard time going 20 miles to see a new musical. What drew you up to Toronto, and which, which incarnation was it that you went to see? I saw the third incarnation, the third and final Canada production at the Winter Garden that the Mervishes produced, and uh, I, I was sent an invitation from the Mervishes to come up and see it, and uh, I think the headline from one of the reviews was, Is Chaperone Broadway Bound? And uh, I read the first paragraph, and it completely intrigued me. It wasn't like anything I had ever seen or heard about before. And it was simply the conceit of the show in that a man puts his favorite record, his favorite cast recording on, on his record player and it comes to life in his apartment in his mind. And I thought, how interesting. I would love to personally see how that plays out. All the while thinking, I can't imagine that this isn't too inside for a mainstream audience. So I went up there because I thought, well, the reviews are terrific, but I'm also very curious to see how, an, how a full audience reacts to it. So I flew up there in July of 2002 and saw the final weekend, uh, the final performances, and saw the audiences reacting similar to how they're reacting now, which was quite, quite good. And uh, I went backstage, met the four of these fellows here, and they were uh, being, uh, they were in a brief meeting with their stage manager who was reprimanding them because the show went 20 minutes over <laughs> with ad-libbing and whatnot. And I, I was just overwhelmed with the show and I had said to them, you could have gone on for three hours. I thought it was terrific. So I uh, came back uh, to New York and endeavored to secure the rights. But uh, as much as I loved the show, I had always recognized that it really is about the man in the chair. And I spoke with their uh, agent 
And I said, I would love to try to secure the rights, but I really don't want to do the show unless I have some sort of good faith agreement with Bob Martin that he would be willing to star in the show on Broadway if we were ever so lucky to get That was there. a hard decision. For <laughs> <laughs> a tortured weekend yeah. for Bob. But, <laughs> but I didn't want to find out after the fact that he wasn't interested because I, I never would have gone after the rights otherwise. Let me interrupt and ask you, were there other producers seeking the rights? Were you in competition? Were you fending off other, author, other offers on the show? Now we can finally be honest. Yeah, Roy. because I, I'm happy to say uh, I did not have any idea who else was going after the rights and it probably would have made me a nervous wreck if I knew but honestly I never cared to ask the question after I got the rights. so if you know something tell us now or forever hold your peace. <laughs> well not really actually there was some discussion there were there were a few people there were a few people sniffing around yeah. people uh, with guns <laughs> with guns yeah. yeah but Roy was definitely a preferred choice so you got the rights in 2002 and what was the process once you had the rights how well, did you part, go about part of the process was uh, frustrating for me because I was producing six shows a year out of paper mill and right after I secured the rights I was in the process of bringing I'm not Rappaport to Broadway with Judd Hirsch and Ben Vereen so and I had told them that this is going to slow things down a little bit for me uh, but once uh, we got past Rappaport and I started ramping up again. I had shopped the show around. I knew I wanted to do it in one or two regional theaters to see how a U.S. audience would react to it. I knew it was probably not the best choice for Paper Mill simply because of its close proximity to New York. Uh, so I sent it to Michael Ritchie who was up at uh, Williamstown Theater Festival at the time and a number of other folks. I sent it to Kevin a few years ago. And, uh, and also, just out of idle curiosity, I put it into the National Alliance of Music Theater Festival for consideration. And let's take a second and just explain what that is for the people who don't know. The National Alliance of Musical Theater is an organization that supports companies that do musical theater throughout the country. And they do a festival, an industry festival, uh, each year of typically eight to 12 new musicals presented in truncated form entirely for people in the industry. So it's not the Fringe Festival, it's not right. um, performance-based, it's really, uh, it's, it's a bit of a, an industry bazaar for new material. Right. So that came about in what year? Uh, when was that? That was about two years? 2004. Year, 2004. And I, I really, I wanted to put it in there so that my colleagues could look at this and tell me if I was crazy or not. Uh, and I was successful in pretty much getting everyone from the industry, not just the regional theaters from around the country that are members of NAPT, but uh, my commercial colleagues as well. And uh, it was a, a wonderful phenomenon to see the reaction that came from that room in those two performances, uh, not only from the audience of, of theater lovers, but producing peers. And uh, they actually had to cut the, the presentation short because it went over so long, which caused a little because more of laughter. because yes. of laughter and applause, <laughs> which, which, was, which, was, <laughs> which was a great reason to have to cut us off. So, so that's how it all came to be, and Kevin came to see the reading. And well, a before we get folks. Kevin onto it, in the period between the time you, you picked up the rights, were you working, was there more development? You'd said you really wanted to have Bob <laughs> as part of the show, but was, were there script issues, were there score issues that you were working on with the team? Well, we hadn't really brought anyone to the table. We hadn't identified a director or any of those folks. So no, there, there was talk amongst ourselves and they took what they had learned from Canada and were rethinking things. But when we were chosen for the NAMM Festival, 
the immediate thought was we've got to get a director to do this, and there wasn't enough time. Uh, we pretty much had to cast it uh, without the author's input because they were up in Toronto, so it was all just a, a shot. And the, company, the work we did do was reducing the script yeah, for, the script. for that performance, and which was actually a very valuable exercise. It was a yeah. valuable exercise because mm -hmm. we realized there were a lot of things that we didn't mind cutting. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's yeah, true. That's true. Yeah. But I didn't think that that was a good time to start exploring directors. Uh, I wanted New York audiences to see what I experienced in Canada, so I asked Bob if he would be able and willing to direct this 45-minute presentation, which he did basically get it back up to the speed of where I saw it. And, and the people who the were people cast in that, I mean, there are people who were in that presentation who are in the show now, even though they were literally cast and they get paid really nothing for doing a presentation at NAMPT. You put them into it, and how many of the people stayed with it? I, I remember Georgia Angle. Georgia, Georgia Angle and, and Danny Burstyn. Yeah. Oh, originally. So, Kevin, <laughs> like me, you went to one of those presentations at NAMPT, and, and what was your response to that? Well, my story starts a little earlier when I took a restraining order out on Roy <laughs> for <laughs> constantly hounding me about a show <laughs> called The Drowsy Chaperone. And, uh, and I said, oh, it's The Drowsy Chaperone. Yes, it's here on my desk. And, it looks delightful, but I don't know. <laughs> and I, and I, I, it really sat there for a year because I was busy with other things. Avenue Q was going it was on just, really we right just, in We were just this. moving into previews on Avenue Q. And I had heard about Drazi Chaperone from the Mervishes earlier, because I also ran a, a large not-for-profit in St. Paul, Minnesota, called the Ordway Center for the Performing Arts. And I heard about this production. And um, the, uh, it, but I could not get to Toronto at that time. And, uh, and I saw Roy, uh, one of, and we had talked together as colleagues many times, and uh, finally, the day before, uh, he saw me at a restaurant, and he said, you know, I'm doing this thing tomorrow, and I said, yes. He says, you know, it's at 11.15, can you come? And I said, okay, okay, uh, sure, because I felt bad that it had been sitting on my desk, and I needed to come see it. And I sat there, and um, I, I, I was just, I went and I just watched this thing, and I fell in love with the heart of, this, of who the man in chair was, and the fact that I, it, I didn't find it to be a parody at all. I found it to be a window into every human being in terms of what defines themselves. And I think that's the power of this show, is that it's about definition of self and how art and life have to cohabitate to inspire you to keep going. And, and I, I, felt, I saw this whole meta thing about what life is. Um, and maybe I'm nuts, no. but I really said, oh my goodness, this is not about musical theater. This is about the tools we need to survive. And I got very excited about that idea and all the levels it was playing. And just to say, for this 45-minute presentation, I, it, was, it was very choppy, it was very episodic in terms of structure, and no offense, it just was. I was like, okay, that's good. And I didn't find myself laughing as much as just sort of doing calculations in my head of where my emotion was going. And, I, um, and then, because everyone was laughing so much, uh, they weren't able to finish the 45-minute presentation. So there was no ending. All of a sudden, some <laughs> lovely young woman stepped up and said, I'm sorry, to be fair to all the other napped things, we're going to have to uh, stop right now. And it was, it was just not over. And, and there was rioting and some, and some, some beatings. <laughs> And I thought, oh, good, that, that can get some advertising. And um, anyway, to, I fell in love with it. And I, I rushed down to the stage and, um, and said, you know, Roy, give me a call. Um, I see what you're talking about now. I understand it. 
And um, a week later, uh, that next night, I met the authors. And um, we, we had a nice, nice sort of meeting of emotional minds. And I said, this is great. This is a great idea. Yes, it could go to Broadway, I think. But we really need to find the right director. That has to It can't, you know, don't do any more work on it until we really find a director because I have a certain theory about musicals where they must start on the earth and in the heavens, be about a community, and must be driven by love. Those are my three. And, 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 and I felt the man in chair was, and who he was, we really needed to like, explore because I wanted to know. He's, I felt he was every man. And all he said, oh, this is, that's what excited me. So, naturally, then the question is, when did, when did you fix upon Casey? When did he join it's the, the longest team? introduction ever. <laughs> oh, good, I get to talk now. <laughs> I tried to throw it to you now. <laughs> that was good. That was nice. For, for, many people, start with? for many people, Casey's name first became particularly well-known for his work last year on Spamalot as the choreographer. How's that show I, doing? Is that... It, it, <laughs> seems, okay. it, seems to, it, it seems like it'll run. Right. But the question is, were you... Had you involved Casey in, in this as director and choreographer prior to Spamalot, or was this a case of, ooh, here's a hot show, maybe he's a good guy for us? It, you know, everyone has a different recollection, perhaps. Well, but, let's hear all of them. Okay, well, <laughs> well, we had, just because when, you know, Roy and I talked about this, one of the most important things that maybe people don't understand is I run away from shows that are basically fully done, and here's the team, don't you want to be the producer? And I'm like, no, then I'm not... I'm not collaborating. So in the collaborative process, I think we introduced you to five or six uh, directors. Some were directors, uh, some were director choreographers. And we all felt that it needed, the show had never danced. And I saw that if it's going to be about the 20s, the show better dance. I mean, a lot of the, the always, script is inspired dance. by Esther Rogers' movies, and it was always an obvious hole. <laughs> yes. And, and, and from what I understand, because I didn't see any pictures, I stayed away from every image from the Canadian productions, not out of any disservice, but just so I at least could maybe be a voice with a clean slate and have no, no understanding of what that was, except that it did well. And um, finally, we called Casey, and I had worked with Casey. I'd known Casey from uh, Crazy For You when he was a performer, and I was around that show because I was the booking agent for that show. And, uh, and then I had hired him when I was at the Ordway to choreograph a production of Prince and the Pauper, which I thought he did brilliant work, and I found his choreography always was character-driven. And since this, uh, this was a group of characters I had never <laughs> met the likes of before, I thought it might be a good mix, and Roy and I uh, brought you guys down, and we called before, but our first meeting was when? It was, well, first of all, Kevin called me on the phone and proceeded to read the script to me over the phone. <laughs> I'm his he read, study. He goes, you got to hear the first part of this. you got to hear it. He read, he read the first couple speeches, and I, I thought it was fantastic. Um, <clears throat> uh, my first meeting was the morning after Spamalot opened. So there was an opening night party and everything, and I knew that I had to get up for an 11 o'clock meeting. But I thought, you know, that's maybe it's some good sort of karma or a good omen to, like, you know, the, the morning after opening night, you're, you know, talking about your, and hopefully a next project. So I met these guys, and we just hit it off right away. Immediately, yeah. we really did, you know. And it was, it, it was, it was great. And I felt like we were all on the same page, and it, we sort of took it from there. And then Kevin called me the next week and said, "We would like you to do this." Um, There's really no contest. Even have we had great other candidates, but the energy and the mischievous joy that was created with these five individuals, where the ideas just started popping, 
it was um, and like okay what everybody like the storytelling became first and foremost we knew that the talent was there let's really talk about the storytelling okay well I'm sorry I was going to say I you know right off the bat too I was a little nervous about it you know because it doesn't read as well as it plays at all, you know, and me not knowing any of these guys and knowing that the lead character is already cast by someone I've never seen perform that I, I know nothing about, you know, was, was, a, was a little daunting. And then to see it, and it does read a little bit more like a parody in a way when you first read it because it's, it's broad comedy in that way. And it made me a little nervous too right after Spamlot. I was like, I, oh, I don't know if I want to get into the same kind of thing right after this, but what was different is, is the heart, and, I, and, and, and that I, I knew that that was sort of what it was, but it was a little scary until we all started, all started seeing each other. But once we met, I was like, okay, I have nothing to worry about. And I really felt like that, even though I'd never seen Bob on stage, which was, which was a scary thing because we were working on the show for months before I'd ever seen him you know, do anything. You know, it wasn't until we're sitting there, and no. you're sitting there with an author who is also your leading actor. It's, yeah, you, it was you, a little. I mean, I felt completely. It's it's weird because I totally trusted it, but then all of a sudden you have these doubts because you're like, oh my gosh, and also you know, poor Bob in poor Bob. No, just kidding. <laughs> no, but, but in in rehearsals and stuff, he has to. It was hard for him to completely, to completely commit to the actor part because he had to wear the writer hat so much. So it was it was hard for me to always see that but you know getting back to that meeting it was it was just great and we all just got along so well and like Kevin said the mis, the mischievous thing we all sort of felt like we were laughing at sort of the same things and because telling I mean, I stories think it's safe to say stuff. that we were really anxious too especially the idea in a way the idea of a choreographer director is a bit of a we knew we needed dancing but we thought oh and no first, and the first job it was my first job directing a broadway show too yeah, you know this too. is my debut so i think that that must have made you guys go a little bit <laughs> but yeah, what, what but i was going to say is what we were almost most anxious yeah. of probably yeah. about the sense of humor and being sort of crushed by a sort of dance vision you know <laughs> do you right. know what i mean like because the last because it's all about performance and character and, and humor and and uh, the, you know when we knew that we had that then we knew but we were also excited, you know, when we thought about it, about the idea of a director choreographer, because this show is not just about dancing, it's about movement. Mm -hmm. And the set itself is almost like another character in the show. It's constantly transforming. Right. And it's, it was absolutely crucial that we had somebody at the helm that was, knew how to move the action around, move the characters in and out of these two worlds that we're presenting. But we're already moving into the actual production. I'm very curious, once you met, once everybody said, okay, we like each other, we get the same jokes, at that point, you have producers who certainly have an idea of what they, where they think the show needs to get. You have a director as an idea. What were the things that you focused on? I mean, beyond specific jokes or specific moments, what was your process in that in that period, and and what were you trying to achieve? Well, I think I, I mean I think the first thing was we we had to figure because also we were heading into it pretty quickly. I mean, you know, we, found, we had five months before we started the Amundsen, but five months is nothing when you have to deal with the set. And the thing is, we hadn't quite conceptualized it. You know, the, the, the last production that they had done uh, in Toronto basically had no set. It was six doors and a chair. So we weren't in any no. world, and you know, it's hard to imagine. I, you know, I <coughs> kind of like fully, this set. I think yeah, it was, it was kind of like this. I think this was the was. set of the Grazi Chaperone Academy, but not as evocative. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but um, could we borrow uh, it for the tour? <laughs> <laughs> we could talk. So it was really talking about that before we decided like how we were going to proceed yeah. with stuff, you know. And so we all sat and we sat with the set designer once. Dave Gallo got on board, and um. We came up with, you know, with the idea of making it in an apartment. You know, I, from the very beginning, had this picture of a refrigerator center stage. 
I don't know why. And I was yeah. like, I want people to come out of the fridge. You know what I mean? I just, I, I just had these thoughts. I, was, I, I guess I was hungry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you always have that image. I was, yeah, have, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. But you know, so that's where it sort of, that's where it sort of started. And, and we were all, I think, scared of that because we didn't know how literal we wanted the world to be. So we were, here we were like embarking on this, this whole, this whole concept and really not sure how it was going to play. And I was always scared that yeah. we were going to get on stage in LA and I was going to go, oh my God, this is a huge mistake. We should get the six doors back. Mm -hmm. You know, but we could never act that way as we were doing it. And I have to say that Kevin and Roy were amazing during this whole thing because during that process, they really just said, Go for it. Here you go, go for it. And they really like, completely nurtured us to sit there in a room together and do all this. And then when we talked about it, they were very excited about it. They gave us ideas, but they never, they were just really supportive the whole time. And I, I'm so appreciative of that. Yeah, I, I should explain that in, as we moved from stage to stage with this show, we, the reason there were six doors at the Winter Garden <laughs> was that we had to make a, a choice as to whether um, we allow the show to, uh, we allow the audience to sort of for it to be an evocation of the musical. In other words, do we, do we have a neutral place where, we sh where both worlds coexist? Like a, like a kind of you know, metaphor for the theater. Theatrical metaphor. A, a theatrical metaphor of a blank space where anything can happen. And basically that decision was made for us by our very small budget at the window. <laughs> yes, exactly. To be perfectly frank. There but we knew that there, were, there was something unsatisfying about that. And so we wrestled with this idea of, of fully realizing the real world. Uh, and then, you know, which, in our discussions, we realized ran, it's the way to go and we should run with which it. We'd always thought of and sort of yeah. uh, toyed with, but we're never able to realize. There are, then, there are a lot of things. Afford, basically. There were a lot of things that we couldn't afford or couldn't realize, like the whole sort of ending sort of idea of the yes. show, which we won't say. Won't say. But, but, <laughs> but yeah, but that, that whole idea came at a set meeting. You know, the whole idea of interruptions yeah. from the real world yeah. a little bit. Actually, from Dave Gallo is how that started. He was like, what about if that? And we're all like, hmm. And then it ended up being a great ideas great idea. You know? I want to come back to more of the creative elements when uh, the actors join us in just a few minutes. I want to ask Roy and Kevin, uh, before they uh, leave us, the challenge of selling a show with a title that is very unfamiliar, <laughs> authors who have not worked on Broadway before, uh, a leading man who is not a household name. What are I am the, in my house. Yet. I just want to defense. But what are the challenges of the drowsy chaperone? And indeed, I've read a few things that there was even some debate about should this show be called The Drowsy Chaperone? Yeah. Were these marketing elements? Hard to imagine that that was ever questioned. It was. <laughs> <laughs> Looking I think, back now. I think the most important element that, that kept us on course is I finally got on the right medication. Um, <laughs> I'm teasing. Um, no, the, the re... The, the, the issue was, you know, 1928 is a very interesting time, too, which I love about the show in terms of marketing. It's really sort of the real transition where vaudeville was really on a spin, and we were, we, you were taking vaudeville acts and putting them right in shows and, and as part of the scene, which is this show, which I love about the time of 1928. So we were looking back at those titles, and I you know, saying, well, look, they, they, there's always a, a female and then a, like, you know, and then another, and then a word that's a little suggestive. So we were thinking maybe it should be called the Oops Girl as an idea for a musical. And I did some canvassing of people and Roy and I, I can't, there were weeks about the title. And, um, 
And finally, I, what we just realized is, look, we've gone this far with it. Why don't we just trust it? The fact that it's not easily sellable and that people are going to have to discover it is what is organically special about it, that people are attaching and therefore we went into, we're not pre-sold, we are, you know, are, it's amazing what's happened to our sales, just, it's just blossomed because people now know what the show is and yet people are now, whether they call it the sleepy chaperone, the drunken chaperone, or the drowsy chaperone, or even the drippy xylophone, they know <laughs> it's that show that is making people laugh and sing as they leave the theater. And when you're a commercial producer in the theater, what a lot of commercial producers forget is, I don't care how much you spend on advertising. If the experience isn't special in the theater, it doesn't going to work. So you could name the show here, or it, yeah. or, yeah. or you know, nothing. Put a, put a glyph for the show. <laughs> and if it's good enough, people will come. We had to trust that. And it, but it was, it was, everyone was everyone. Who was everyone? From, from day one, having seen the show, I, I, just, I always have to go back to my first experience with the show. And I always thought, as much of our advertising states, that really is a word of mouth show. We don't really have anything else to sell just yet. And when people see it and they find out our secret, that's what hopefully will win them over. And they carry the water. They carry. They, they are our advertisers. Every person who sees the show, and that's true. Bob's relatives. That's <laughs> the special combo. You know, but it was scary. In defense of the title, and like, I mean, as writers, we were trying to come up with a title that was mundane and forgettable. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why yeah. it's lost. Marketing. Because I know. Well, like, again, we weren't thinking of it in terms of commercial Broadway market. Yeah. But because we, we thought, what would be more, what would be funnier than a man saying, I've got to play for you the record of this show called The Drowsy Chaperone, which is such a. It just sounds like a bad show. <laughs> <laughs> well, not bad, but weird and archaic, I would think. Like, weird what, and archaic and, and sleepy and, and just what yeah, is it? Yeah. <laughs> But that's part of the irony of the The, the idea is the show was never a giant hit, even in its time. It was a strangely passed over music. It ran for what, uh, 500 performances? What is, no, we, we had, it did, actually, yes, and Gable and, good, actually. Gable and Stein, as people who buy the souvenir program, uh, and I encourage you to, uh, will discover they wrote 11 other musicals. And yes. they are actually wow. depicted in the souvenir program. In fact, Man of, uh, the Man in Chair actually has a whole book of dreams within the souvenir program that talks about his love affair with um, Gable and Stein. Gable and Stein are the alleged authors of song, songwriting team. From we should the, say that somebody came into audition. I was gonna, so I Tell was that story. Okay, that this, there is no Gable and Stein, but there's this woman who came in when we were auditioning in LA, and she's like, oh my God, I know Mr. Gable. Mr. Gable, <laughs> I know his nephew. Is he here? Is Mr. Gable here? Is he here? And I was like, oh, guess I'm not casting her. <laughs> <laughs> we were having a lot of fun. But she was explaining how they all knew each other. I was like, really? <laughs> Great. His son, his grandson. But his nephew. I do think, uh, you know, we, we will be successful when people start leaving and going to Tower saying, I'd like to see the discography yeah. of Gable and Stein. Yeah, what yeah. else do you got? Because yeah. yeah, we just saw their show, The Drowsy <laughs> Chaperone, and we thought it was terrific. <laughs> Well, on that note, I think we're going to take a break. We're going to thank Kevin and Roy for telling us their part of the story. Thank you. We'll be back in uh, just a moment with some of the actors from the production of The Drowsy Chaperone. And now we'll take a moment and hear a few words about the work of the American Theatre Wing. The American Theatre Wing has played a vital role in New York's theatrical life for more than 60 years. We stand for excellence 
and we support education in the theater. Best known for creating the Tony Award, our work reaches beyond Broadway and New York. These seminar programs, which are supported by the Annenberg Foundation and the Dorothy Strelson Foundation, are an unequaled form for discussions with today's most creative artists. Downstage Center's in-depth interviews are heard on XM Satellite Radio. Our grant and scholarship programs support New York theater companies and theater students. And since we began, we have given away more than two and a half million dollars. Our theater intern group helps young people who are just starting in their careers build a professional network. And Springboard NYC is a two-week boot camp for aspiring actors from colleges across the country. All of the American Theatre Wing's educational and media programs are available for free, on demand, from our website, americantheaterwing.org. Now, let's return to the seminar. To explore more of the world of the Drowsy Chaperone, we're now joined by two members of the company of the show. First, Edward Hibbert, who plays Underling the Butler, and Beth Level, who plays the Drowsy Chaperone. Thank you. <laughs> In the first half of our discussion, the word parody kept getting used as a bad word. It kept coming up. So I'm very curious to ask the actors, in terms of finding a playing style for this material, what were you encouraged to go for? Was it truth? Was it comedy? Was it parody? Where have you had to pitch yourselves? And I should say, because you're not just playing the characters in The Drowsy Chaperone, you have the extra layer of playing the actors who play the actors performing in Absolutely. The Drowsy Chaperone. So, so there's a whole world. So, so Beth, I want to ask you first, what, where, where was the jumping off point for this show? Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That clears it up. <laughs> That's a line, actually, I have in the show. Um, Not for long. Was it? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving on. This isn't the time to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it is. It's a process. It's a working process. Um, my jumping off part was finding who the character was. And that I, I was informed by that by really figuring out who Beatrice Stockwell was. And she is the woman who plays the drowsy, the drowsy chaperone. And finding out and discovering who she was, where she lived in the 20s, what type of person she was. And it was truth in the comedy in that that's who she was. So the shoes were very easy to put on once you realized who this woman was. And just working with everyone, and it became... Um, I, and I never thought parody. I just always thought, this is the woman, this is her world, this is my truth, go. But very little of that appears on stage. So I'm curious, in terms, explicitly, mm -hmm. so who is Beatrice Stockwell, who's playing this character? Beatrice Stockwell, as I discovered with the creative team and during rehearsals, was a diva actress in the 20s. It was very demanding and um, very popular, very, very famous, very well-known, came from a huge theatrical family. Later became Dame Beatrice Later Stockwell. Later became Dame Beatrice Stockwell, as we know, where she sang um, rousing anthems and she insisted on certain things being done. Every time she was cast in a show, she came with a list. <laughs> 
that had to be done or she would not, she would not take the role. And that list was achieved in this show by having an, uh, a wonderful song in, in, in the show that probably she demanded happened. I don't know if the drowsy chaperone should sing the song, but Beatrice demanded that it happen. She demanded the final entrance. She demanded certain things in costumes. And it became, she, she informed Drowsy completely about where I needed to go with her, with, like I said, with the creative team's help and with rehearsals. And there was one great thing we did in, in rehearsal in California where it was called the hot, we did lots of exercises, but this one was called the hot seat. Did you talk about that when I was well, gone? Well, we, we didn't, uh, look, basically when we did, uh, when we did rehearsals, we, for the first two weeks, we did exercises every single morning with, with everybody to get everyone on the same page and all to do with vaudeville and who their vaudeville performers were playing these roles so that the show, the characters, even though the, they, Bob's character says this show was two-dimensional, the show doesn't feel two-dimensional to the audience that's watching it now because all of these people have such a life and Hot Seat was, uh, was something that uh, the writers had done in at Second City as an, as a, improv exercise and we did different exercises we made them make up a dance for their character we did all kinds of stuff every morning and it really really helped the show I mean, it, was it really amazing. helped everyone get physical and and get to know who they were and to come from a truthful place and stylistically be on the same page too exactly we did style uh, stuff too but anyway hot seat is each of these people had to had to sit in a chair and everyone asked them questions about the character like we'd ask Noel Fitzpatrick all about you know what was it like to do this and everyone literally was put in the hot seat and had to answer all these things about the character and it was it was great, oh, and we it learned was a great so deal. informative, and we made them read scenes from like modern day soap operas as characters from 1928. As Beatrice would read it or something. We, we had all bios. kinds of stuff to just get it that specific. And like you said, the audience won't necessarily know that or see that, but that's what it was done for because the audience knows that these people have uh, an active life. Absolutely. And did those exercises inform your writing? Were there things that came out of it that then became part of the show? Yes. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Yeah, in complicated ways. I mean, the idea for the, one of the, again, one of the things we like, like Kevin was saying about the period is shows weren't fully integrated musicals as we understand them. Well, they were beginning to be and there were some, but still this show, The Drowsy Chaperone, had elements of vaudeville, like Casey was saying, elements of sort of melodrama, of spectacle. And what we imagine, at least when we try and imagine what it was like to see I don't know, Ray Bolger and Heads Up or something like that, is that it was based around him and, and the, the energy that the audience got was of this performer and feeling this, the life of this performer who was able, the charisma came across the stage no matter what he was playing. And that's, that's what this sort of exercise allowed us to do, to build it out of what the characters, we really build, I've always built the show out of the act, been inspired by the actors and tried to service them. We yeah. built the whole thing to their strengths. Which is, mm -hmm. yeah. that's what I was going to say. Everyone's strength. It's not so much about the details that came out in those exercises, it's about the voice that we started to hear from each mm -hmm. character. And, the, and, and in the case of um, uh, Kitty and Feldzig characters. Uh, oh, uh, completely. It's, yeah, uh, Jennifer Smith and, and Lenny Wolpe is about a relationship between two characters. And we sort of reconceived uh, those two characters within the show to support what we were seeing between those two actors. And, uh, and Beth uh, really is, is the Beth was prime instrumental. Because yeah. when, when, when I first read the script, and actually we had a very hard time casting the role mm -hmm. because it wasn't well, it wasn't well written. No, it wasn't finished. It wasn't finished. No, and let me, I don't mean that in a bad way at all. And these guys know no, that. No, in the good uh, way. I, I mean, it was, it, was written, it was written terribly. Way. It was, it was really bad. No, but the thing is, it was, it was very two-dimensional. And it was, it was written, that character was written just as, Say a line, say a line, say a line without 
much behind it. But now that we've fleshed it out and, you know, uh, Greg and Lisa wrote a new song for her, a, a different song, so it didn't feel as two-dimensional, we were able to, you know, I, do I, all of it around Beth and make this role what Beth has brought to it. Now, it, th it is Beth, and, it, and it's, so, it's so great to watch because it wasn't that. We didn't, right. when, we, when we first started, nobody knew why it was called The Drowsy Chaperone because The Drowsy Chaperone is, is not the lead part at all. She's a very peripheral part to start with, you know. But um, now people sort of know why it's called that because of Bob's relationship to her and how they, you know, she's his the favorite character. And the character is keep, a star keep now. Things, you you know, exactly. Yes. That was one of the yeah. challenges when the producers were discussing the title. We thought, well, we'll show them why it's called yes. The Drowsy yes. Shack. Yeah. We'll make her a yeah. star. Yeah, <laughs> well, and though it's not called Underling, Edward in these exercises. <laughs> and you can talk to them about that later. <laughs> but, but in Underling's those, revenge. In yeah. those exercises, what... Well, another what one which was really helpful was Casey brought in an array of wonderful 20s, 30s musicals, and we sat there and watched them. And it occurred to me that, first of all, there was this wonderful thing that these numbers would erupt, and everybody would go into sort of loose-limbed character <laughs> dancing, which I think has become very much part of what we're all doing in the show. And also, one looked at those people who played these roles, and at that time, they were cast for their personalities. There were actors mm -hmm. who went from playing one drill man. I mean, Eric Bloor and Ev Edward Everett Horton's love child is Noel Fitzpatrick. <laughs> <laughs> um, image, and, yeah. you know, in my hot seat, I decided that all his career was just from one Jeeves-like manservant to another. And that's what you, you want a good butler? You'd call on Noel Fitzpatrick. <laughs> that's right. And you get what you get. But in terms of the playing <laughs> style, I'm curious, you appeared in Me and My Girl. At the same theatre, yeah. Which, of course, is the kind of show that this, this is, is modelled upon. Yes. So, in terms of creating this layered character, how, did you draw on what you'd done in Me and My Girl and that no. style? I, well, not really, because I think that's a wonderful show, but that really wasn't a pastiche, um, a homage. It just was a rollicking good musical comedy. Well, it was, it was that show from the period. Yeah, I think more of The Boyfriend, which I have a connection to, because my dad was in the original production. And when I first read this, I thought, this, in every sense of the word, is as perfect a pastiche, uh, a parody, which I don't think is a negative term. I think it is a loving term for what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Parody is great. It's only bad when it's bad parody. <laughs> <laughs> seen a few of those and done a few of those, but I digress. <laughs> Uh, but no, I think that The Boyfriend and The Drowsy Chaperone are very kindred spirits in terms of what they are, are lovingly um, sending up. But the difference, I think, is the man in the chair. The, oh, of course. That's a whole other layer. That's yeah, what yeah. gives it its complete originality. But within the book <laughs> show, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the case. And as we talk about then modeling on the actors who are in it, and you've said that along the way there was even some of that for the songwriters, when certainly Beth and Edward came into it, were, were you, we already heard there was a new song. How did you work with these actors? What, what sprang up in your minds once you really had the cast? Not just these two, but people like Danny Burstein and Sutton Foster and, and George Engel and George Ang. This is a, yeah. So, so what, what came out of those actors? Um, these actors? Well, uh, certainly with Beth, like, sh I, I, I think when, when you came on board... you so interesting. Go ahead. <laughs> no, your, your big song was still kind of... It was, it, it, was, was in the it was in there. It was there, but it was, I think we had fully 
Right, well, that was it. another part song. Of, yeah. Yeah. Well, we, the, yeah, yeah, and so you just sort of filled out that song. Like, now it's, you know. Well, there was another song initially in yeah, the early production. Really it was three, more of a, I think, in a patter song. It's kind of a very no, no parody type oh, yes. song. Which, which uh, Edward will be doing soon. <laughs> which <laughs> didn't really work for the kind of diva character she was doing. And yeah. when we saw what she was performing, the way we wanted to transform the character into this kind of and the, force. And the energy of the song we needed. The energy of the song we needed at that time that in the show, which is something show, Casey yeah. was into. It was like, we, this is the introduction of this character. This character is introduced briefly in the opening number, which also was a new number. Uh, but this was the number where she had to win over the entire audience. And they all had to see why this man in the chair loves this person so much, loves his performer. And uh, as the number grew, and we saw what Beth could do, you know, not keep notching that up a few notes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> up a third. We did. We did. Higher. We kept bringing it Longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You hold that longer. And, uh, it's true. It, and that's very much how we work anyways. Once we, we come with a song to someone, we like to work with them and the musical director, whoever that may be, and, uh, and fiddle with it as we go along. And, uh, and for the actors, I also want to ask, because it's not the most common situation, we, we often hear you know, actors, you know, you're not supposed to go up to another actor and talk about their performance or experience. Everybody has to find their own way. You leave that to the director. But of course, you, you are performing in this show with one of your authors. Has that, yes. been, uh, has that been an interesting situation for you, to suddenly have somebody else who's up there on stage maybe pulling you aside and saying, I was sort of thinking about this? It's, Edward? It's been, it's been a very happy, collaborative energy from, work, from day one. Um, and I don't think it's ever had any kind of, it's not been any kind of tight-lipped person. <laughs> and we've been very open and creative, and I think if something isn't working, I mean, one of the things I'm loving about this, because it's the first time I've actually been in a totally original book musical, is that the journey, the refinement, the constant changes, you know, figuring out the mathematics, if you will, of why one line isn't quite landing and discussing it. it it's fascinating and it keeps one right up there on one's toes. <laughs> um, so no, I, I think it's been a very positive thing. And... Um, it's, it's also good because, you know, it's what's, it's, it was scary to me at first thinking, oh my gosh, the writer's in the show, so he's not going to be able to see. But he's sitting in a chair watching the whole show, yeah, so he gets, to see, he gets to see what is and isn't working as far as that part. You know, he leaves it to us for his own stuff, and he can feel his, his stuff as well. And I completely, I know, I know you are a writer in the show, but that's not, I know you as man in chair. And during the show, we as performers, we as the actors on stage, never see the man in chair. He's invisible. We are just in his world. Mm -hmm. So, it's, have... yes, it's a very strange process for me, <laughs> <laughs> because I, I mean, rehearsal-wise, I'm never performing with anyone. Mm -mm. So, I, I, and so much of my material is geared to uh, how the audience reacts to something that I say. Rehearsal is absolutely torture for me, because because my scene partner is not there, basically, um, and and then. Actual development is difficult as well because uh, I usually have the changes for something a couple of days before the cast sees them. I know what's going. <laughs> so yes. I, I, so I you know what's going too. Now it's go to the point where when oh, we'll yes, try a new line that. there, and I mean I have to control myself because it's like it comes out and you just hear like 
it just sitting there and you go, that's so not going to be the <laughs> We, we Wait, change quickly. It's on the new pages. You're right, though, Edward. It's, it is a fascinating science oh, math. I mean, certainly not a science. <laughs> but it is great to have the opportunity, to, a cast that's willing to take t changes you know, a few hours before showtime and, and try something out. But the, the, the tough part for me is knowing a couple of days beforehand, saying lines that I know are going to be cut, oh. and hearing actors say lines that I know are, are, are no longer there, and moments that I know don't work, and I know why they don't work. And, and, and have, having to turn that mechanism off and, and commit to character is Because you don't want to be on stage do. wincing. Because <laughs> that would be bad. Or taking notes or <laughs> sighing. But or obviously, like Bob is disciplined when you say that. He doesn't talk to, to actors on the stage and, or, yeah, or, or in rehearsals. We, he will come up and oh, yeah, Casey yeah, yeah, and yeah, uh, we'll all talk. Although we talked early on about the fact that because this is very much about a Broadway musical, um, it is American in that sense, I did want to ask the authors, did you find, as the show has transitioned from Canada to the U.S., was there a Canadian sensibility and things that landed there that don't, over multiple productions, that suddenly you found weren't playing here? There was one joke. <laughs> there was oh. one joke. What's that? We, at the beginning of the show, there's this sort of prayer oh. to the audience asking for the evening to be an enjoyable evening. Asking God. <laughs> it's hilarious. And anyway, one of the things we used to say is, um, well, the joke's, of course, not going to work here. But that's, we used to okay. say, if, if, if it must be a Canadian play, please don't let it be a Canadian play. Because <laughs> in Canada, we're used to that kind of rural melodrama that's well, really... Turgid, or, or, uh, yeah. Some, some. But I, and, and so we, of course, cut that. But we, <laughs> but we didn't On the more really positive side, about Canada, yes, I would say that we always we've always thought that there that was wasn't a, a negative. A, no, 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 I know. <laughs> we've always thought that there was the, 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 there is a Canadian angle, which is sort of the man in the chair that he has this perspective outside of Broadway. Uh, in a way, he's watching as we watched he's from across outsider. the border. Uh, oh. He is watching Broadway and imagining what it's like and being titillated by it and also critical. <laughs> and uh, separated from and uh, you know, I think that's why, actually, there's the old theory about why so many comedians come out of Canada, and I think that we have that sort of observational. forced observational yeah. distance. It's true. Hmm. Since we're on Canada for a moment, I want to diverge wildly from the topic of the drowsy chaperone, and the producers have left the panel so they won't be going, oh, we're losing time promoting <laughs> the show, because all of the creators of this show You've collaborated many times in many permutations, but I do want to mention that even as this was going on, you were becoming involved in a television show which, for me personally, was the most exciting new hour of television since The Sopranos appeared. And that is a show called Slings and Arrows, which has been aired here. <laughs> which has been aired here in the U.S. on the Sundance Channel. And it is indeed a show about a theater company. So even as you're writing a show that, ta that springs off of the creation of theater, you are also involved in another show about the creation of theater. Oh, the levels of irony. <laughs> <laughs> all, all, all we'll say is that to titillate people for the next season is that if, you, if you're thinking how did it influence the show, did, was there any I'm cross? I'm just curious. I will say that my character, who plays a horrible director, 
uh, a sort of pretentious director, not not Basin. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> not he puts his arm around me when he says that. I just realized. I just, I just realized some people might be thinking, oh, he, he was inspired by Casey, and there's going to be a but, but anyway, he directs a musical in the third season uh, that Lisa and, and Greg wrote uh, the music for. Uh, so uh, there's a sort of even more transference. Oh. But I, but I am curious because there is. The, the idea of constantly referencing theater and making drama out of theater and the story of theater, and clearly that has some appeal for you all. Yes. Um, what, what drove Slings and Arrows even in the time that you were, you were doing this? Um, well, yeah, I should say I'm one of the creators of the show and uh, the, one of the writers, and, and Don is in the show, and, and Lisa and Greg write the original music in the show. Um, uh, I, I think. Uh, for me and the, the other two writers, uh, Mark McKinney and Susan Coyne, we've all, all sort of had a love-hate relationship with the theater, uh, being uh, performers and audience members as well. Uh, uh, performers particularly, because it's a, it's a really difficult job, especially when you're doing classical theater, where you have to experience you know, your, your eyes being gouged out every night. <laughs> it's it's uh, when you may have had bad pad thai just before the show, and we, 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 which actually happened to be last <laughs> night. By the way, <laughs> um, but it's it is it's 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 that we really find fascinating the life of the actor on stage as compared to the backstage life, as well as the uh, the life uh, you know the production realities and and theater that the audience may or may not appreciate, and that that whole world is what we find interesting, and that's what really what Slings and Arrows is is about is about the. Um, the personalities of the people backstage, not so much what actually happens on the stage, but what's going on in their own lives. Well, to come back to Drowsy Chaperone, this issue about commenting on theater, television commenting on theater, theater commenting on itself. We spoke earlier, Casey, and you touched on the issue of was there a similarity between what Spamalot was doing and what this show is doing. This is a show which constantly comments on itself, mm -hmm. in a way. And I just wanted to ask you as, you, as you were exploring it, how do you find an emotional through line, a dramatic through line, even as you're constantly remind people, reminding people that they are indeed watching a show? Well, I think what's, I think what's fun about Drowsy Chaperone, which we've talked about with the actors recently, too, is that and that's why, even though, you know, the, the parody word or whatever, you know, it's not like a, that's a, that's a tricky word, but what happens to me is sometimes people use parody and spoof. It's, it's not a spoof. You know what I mean? That's, that's, I don't feel like that at all. But the thing is, I always wanted to feel like a Valentine to that era and to those shows. So the thing that's so important with, with Drowsy is that the actors are completely sincere in everything they do. And I've tried to take out as much commenting as possible from them because Bob's the only one that should be commenting on it. You know what I mean? So the actors should be absolutely genuine and in that world. And you know, the things that Noel Fitzpatrick and Beatrice Stockwell are going for and doing are very real to them too. You know, the audience may not know all that stuff, you know, but hopefully they see the heart through it and, and the other things and the joy of performing. And that to me is what was really important about this. Mm -hmm. Spamalot doesn't, Spamalot has that, but they do verge on the spoof, <laughs> you know what I mean? With like, we know, oh, good, we're, we're skewering Andrew Lloyd Webber here, or we're skewering, you know, an, like an Olympics number in this one, or we're doing Vegas here. There were all those different things that we were parodying there in that. And I wanted this to feel more straight ahead. And that was the thing that I really, when I first came on, I really wanted to be sure 
that it had that. And because of these guys, they feel the same way as I do about, you know, if it's not truthful, it, there's nothing. And I feel like that in comedy too. And I think that was a Spamalot thing too, that even though, you know, they're doing all this broad stuff on stage, everyone is just out there just saying the lines. Mike Nichols keeps saying, you know, just, just say the lines, just say the lines. And, you know, if you're truthful to what's happening, I always think comedy works. And that, that to me is the most important thing in directing a comedy or choreographing a comedy. You know, the thing is, we don't ever stop, like Bob, like Bob said, you know, that, that uh, they were attracted to the idea of a show that just kept moving. And that doesn't mean like we stop and we do a five minute dance number. It, it's, it's, there's, no t there's no time for it and there's no need for it in this show. You know, this has to be character driven and it's all very physical, but we don't, we very rarely in this show stop and do a dance number because that's not what the show needs. Like Sutton's big number, show off, has her just going crazy doing stuff, but it's not really a dance, sure it's a dance number in many ways, but it's a comedic tour de force for her. And that's, you know, that's what I want to do is make sure the numbers are funny and the numbers in this show, as well as the numbers in Spamalot, feel like they're part of the show. You know, that they feel like we're not like taking this funny, funny show and then all of a sudden the choreographer wants to do a dance number to show how well he dances. You know, that's not what I had in mind with this at all. Well, Greg and Lisa, were you writing songs that were meant to be funny songs, ha ha, let's laugh, or were you really trying to focus on songs that would have made sense in something called The Drowsy Chaperone? Both, both. Because Absolutely in a both. show like The Drowsy Chaperone, there'd be the comic song, and then there'd be the sweet song, and just, so we were just trying to, you know, working with Casey as well, we were working on the score, it's let's make the score like the kind of score you'd hear in the 1920s, so the, the Noel Fitzpatrick is, sings a funny song, and... Uh, the bride has, there's a sweet moment with the bride and the groom. So we were just trying to create as authentically as possible what a show like that would sound like. Although uh, sometimes the, the straight songs are also funny. Often they are funny too. Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> Beth's song would, is presumably a straight song, but yeah. certainly funny too. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take a moment and look at another moment from The Drowsy Chaperone, and we'll come back and pursue this a little bit more. I don't want to show off I don't want to wear this no more Play the saucy Swiss Miss no more Blow my signature no more I don't want to show off Janet, please! Don't try to control me I've made up my mind And that's it I quit Since Casey brought up the show-off number, I want to ask, in The Drowsy Chaperone, the original production in the 1920s, was that a comic number in those days? Was that always meant to be? Yes, yes definitely. Sure. I mean, these shows had their own wit and self-referentiality, and they, you know, uh, it's not, that's why it's not exactly a, a parody, because the shows had their own complexity. And when Casey says straight, he doesn't mean straight dramatically. He means committed to the comedy of the period. Obviously, Edward's character is a comic 
character and isn't serious, but he's, he's, what was important was the way he, Edward was able to find a comic persona and a comic routine. Uh, he pulls off an amazing comic routine, and usually comedy is dated very quickly, but it's, it's hilarious when it would, it would, it was, it was <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> We've talked about the fact that the characters, the layer of the characters, the actor playing the character in the show, we know their backstory. Do you, Edward and Beth, do you in fact know the whole arc of the drowsy chaperone, even the, the parts of the play that we're not seeing represented? Because we know cast albums, which is what we're, we're hearing, are only the highlights. highlights. Uh, is, is that story fleshed out, Edward? Do you know? the whole arc I mean, of what, what happens? parts of the show we don't get to see? Exactly. Well, I'd like to say Underling's Dream Ballet. Which, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, I think, to answer that question, I don't know. <laughs> but I do know that the, the highlights of the show, which we do get, it's really, I listen to it every night, and I think it is so perfect because musically and scene-wise, it's got everything that a book musical from the 20s would have. Well, it it's got your showstopper. It's got your beautiful romantic ballad. It's got quirky, eccentric numbers that build to a great climax. So it has, in fact, got all the ingredients you'd have found in a show of that period. I mean, seem wise too. I mean, it really is the it, whole it's show. The complete to me, it is show. the yeah. whole show. I'm I thinking, think oh, God, there's more. I mean, it's. Um, it tells the whole journey, so I just think it's mm -hmm. a nice... Well, the man says that at the top of the show. It's the complete show. It's the complete show. show. It is a recording oh, of the it complete show. It's a two-record set. Two two it's actually a transcription sort I mean, of show. I mean, it clearly it's pushing it a bit uh, historically, but there were recordings at the time where they would record scenes as, as, mm. as well. There weren't really no extent full shows like that. There aren't now either, but you know, it was certainly we're suggesting that the whole show is there. And Beth, you... I, 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 well, I agree with what Edward said. It, to me, it is the whole show, you know, knowing that's the journey, beginning, middle, and end, and I'm very aware of the entire story of that. That's a very interesting question that I was going, that, that's it, though. That's our whole story yeah, yeah, right yeah, there, exactly. isn't it? And we were talking earlier about what you hear from the audience, lines that work, lines that don't oh, yes. work, and I'm wondering how the audiences have affected you? What are the things that, now that you are on Broadway, what have been, from all of these incarnations, what were the, the big changes? What are, and, and indeed, as we're talking, even in the green room, you were saying there's still little tweaks, but, mm -hmm. but what, were the, what were even the changes from Los Angeles that went into the show? Well, two big changes. Big, yeah. well, big, big change was there was a dream ballet in Act was, Two, the second half. It wasn't not Edwards. It was not Edwards, unfortunately. <laughs> but there was a dream ballet that was sort of, this is where we did go into parody with the dream ballet, you know, so, which is why we didn't feel like it was right. And though audiences loved it as its own piece, you know, it was, and Bob even sort of said, you know, it's ahead, it was ahead of its time. So it sort of had pieces of every dream ballet you've ever seen, like that kind of feel. It started with, you know, evil monkeys and then went into American <laughs> in Paris and all that kind of stuff. And it just, was a big, it was a big dream ballet. And what we ended up doing is uh, cutting it, basically. But, <laughs> but we took elements of it and then wrapped it up. We, one of the things we'd heard in LA is that people wanted Sutton to have an, a little bit more of a featured moment in act two. Um, it is a one act show, but it we is a one act show, but we call it act half. one and act two because yeah. uh, the musical had an act one and act two. But so what we ended up doing was taking elements of that dream sequence and using that to expand the number for her and Greg and Lisa wrote some other you know great stuff that 
follows it. And then we just kept spinning it around and making that. And actually, thank God, because it ended up doing great things for Bob and his character uh, with him really getting involved in the show in the second half of it, which was great. So it's that. Uh, Edward and Georgia uh, Engel have um, had a different number in LA uh, than they do now. We replaced that and we're much happier with what it is now because it's the, the one now is much more character driven. It's like you, you know who these people are and now we're doing a number that is comedic and suits the two of them better. It's also related to story. The other yeah, one wasn't exactly. as much. Yeah. And when that change came in, Edward, did they come to you with the new song before they told you you were losing the old song or was it? No, I, I had a feeling by the time we all said au revoir in Los Angeles that <laughs> I could not remember I Remember Love, which was a charming number, which by the way is going to be on the album, which is lovely. Be nice to hear it again. But uh, no, this is much better. I mean, it, as, as Casey says, it, it, it's, it, it takes our characters and, and, uh, and um, we fly with it. Yeah, and also and just, actually, just, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, I Remember Love, the song that was cut, when I first heard it, is one of my favorite songs that Greg and Lisa have written. Song. It really is. I, I absolutely love it. And it, that was the one I was like, that is perfect. That is so 1920s. That's great. But as you find, you know, when you're doing an original musical, if something doesn't suit the show, it can be fantastic. And if it isn't, you know, once you get the pieces of the puzzle together, sometimes something's not right. And that's, that's why the number went. Not because it wasn't a good song. It was, you know, my favorite song. And it just wasn't right for what we were doing once you put everything else together in front of it. Lisa, you yeah, I was just going to expand on that, that uh, you know, writing the new song, this is where we're talking about actors inspiring the writing. Uh, because we, now we have joke lines for Edward, but we realized how funny Edward is. It's like, oh, now we, yeah, know, we, we know the voice of Edward, so a lot of this it song was, was inspired so informative by, for us, yeah. Because me and Lisa, by, actually, w when we write songs, we often demo them ourselves, and we create a little I demo. Hear that? <laughs> and, uh, you know, Lisa was Georgia and I was Edward. <laughs> and uh, that's how we sort of, a lot of times we work, so having known them and loved them, it was, uh, even though the song wasn't the easiest song to write, <laughs> it was certainly uh, hugely... Uh, I've forgotten about it already. <laughs> uh, ...informative for well, us. When you say a song's not easy to write, what do you mean? Is it, is it the lyrics? Is it just finding the right tune? What, what is that It was more, more of the placement of that song, yeah. and, and the what, number what and what the actual service comic, for the characters. Yeah. Yeah. What the actual comic concept of the song was yeah. and how that was going to work. In, also, fitting it right in. It's going to be before that song, it's going to be after that song, and it has to be this length, it's and it has to be about song. this. Yeah. And it was just mm -hmm. trying to fit it perfectly. La last, the last pieces of the puzzle are always the most yeah. difficult to yeah. create. But it's funny because that song was the most collaborative thing that, uh, the f of the four of our writers. Which, the, the new one? Or, yeah. or yes. The, really? We all, we all contributed. I mean, obviously, it was major. Uh, major no, but we were all kind of. We all took a step. Yeah. yeah we're, we're all, all kind of pouncing <laughs> on it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Back yeah. to yeah. thing yeah. about maths we were talking about earlier. Yeah. I think sometimes, and as Casey was saying, I remember Love, the song that we're not doing anymore, was delightful. I heard the demo, and I went, oh, that is adorable. And I think it's the mathematical thing of just like, no one was doing anything wrong, I hope. <laughs> but I think no. what it was was just given the journey the show was on, it didn't seem to be quite the right place for it, yeah. maybe. And so that's when yeah. things change, and it, it, it's all part of the process. And in that process, I mean, it's, as we've said, there's a lot of material that's no longer in the show. It has transformed enormously over its journey, now going back to 1998. How do you finally make that decision to take away something that you may love in many ways? Is it ultimately, Casey, that you get to say, this has got to go? Can there, 
because there's really quite a team here. I mean, it's, it's four authors and a director. What's, what's great about this group is that basically when something doesn't work, all of us just go like, we'll meet in Bob's room, we'll go like, well, that was clear. Even if it's something, but even if it's something we love, like the ballet, there was one day we all just went, you know what, we gotta cut the ballet. Yeah. And we all knew that we loved it, and it was just time to do that. It's we so, all, sort of we, amazing. It, it really is amazing. Very, we would just go fortunate. in there and we're like, well, it's sad, isn't it, that we have to like cut the, you know, there, there's a, a couple that were like the dream Robert, we had like a dream ballet with the dream Robert and Janet <laughs> were in it too. And it was, it was the only step out that these two on, the ensemble members got to do in the show. And we tried so, we, we wanted so badly to keep them in it once we transferred the number into being Sutton's number. And we did, and it was crushing because we just knew after we saw that, we're like, it's not gonna work. And we had to tell them that. But we all, we all pretty much agree yeah, we do. It's, it's yeah. been very it's almost, rare. It's almost psychic. It's it right. is. <laughs> yeah. Even with little lines. Yeah. yeah. Even with words. <laughs> Punctuation. <laughs> In the last couple of minutes that we have, you've made an extraordinary journey from Canada to Broadway. Um, where, where are your hearts now about this piece, and are there going to be other pieces coming from this team? Oh. oh, I hope so. Well, we, well, we haven't really discussed we haven't you know, this out. the next. This one is just, it feels like it's been, well, for me anyway, my life for the last 10 years. So it's, I don't really, it's hard to know kind of where, I'm going to have to get big breath yes, <laughs> soon and, and figure that. out, you know, what the next thing is. Cause Definitely I, for me, and Lisa, something I wanted to point out was actually the Drowsy Chaperone is what brought us together as a songwriting team. Uh, I'd known Bob through Second City, so he always wanted us to get together, and I'd known Lisa and her work. So in so many ways, I feel that whole genesis of the, the piece and all the evolutions has also been um, us developing as a, as a team. And uh, that's certainly something we've done many other, uh, written many other things while well, the development of the Jazzy Chaperone has been going on. So it's uh, a big part of that is, you know. I mean, we're all, friends like we're very close friends and it started as a wedding gift so there's no question that we're going to be together one way or another and it's almost inconceivable that we won't be working together and now that we've sort of our little sort of friendship has expanded onto broadway and we find sort of to our astonishment that we sort of have these instincts and we have feel actually more comfortable than we ever would have imagined and this sort of uh, evocation we had of broadway actually sort of makes some sense that it just seems sort of impossible that there won't be some continuation. But we'll, well, we'll to, talk about we'll that. We'll talk after. after. <laughs> I think my final question has to be a personal one for you, Bob, which is this is a show that began your marriage. And your marriage has obviously gone through the entire evolution of this show. Where is Janet in all of this? Because she, indeed, you said she was someone you performed with. She was part of your group, yet she is is watching this process the whole the whole way. Yeah, she played Janet Vandegraaff in in uh, two productions of mm -hmm. the show. Um, yes, she's well. It's it's bittersweet. We're separated. She's in Toronto. I'm living in New York. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, depending on how the show goes, she'll relocate. Uh, but it's 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 been fantastic. It's been bizarre. I mean, you know, the our manager in Toronto said we should consider copywriting our names. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a, I cannot tell you how odd that is. But but I mean, she loves it. She, she, you know, she, she, we love hearing the Van de Graaff family name uh, sung. 
uh, every night. <laughs> but to answer your question, it's very odd. <laughs> the marriage has survived. <laughs> And is, is but as far as we're concerned, we still see, feel she's there on that stage. She's on the you know? refrigerator. Like, yeah, yeah. She is actually. Our, yeah. pictures are, our wedding picture is on the, the refrigerator on set. On set. <laughs> so we say hi to her every show. <laughs> Everyone in the cast has something on the set. And, oh, and, yes. and producers and crew members. We just wanted to make it personal. So everyone's got like memorabilia and stuff on the set and pictures of family members and kids. Beth mm -hmm. has her family up there and it's pretty cool. Well, there are so many elements that go into a show, from the, the individual mementos to obviously the overall shape. It's, uh, as in this day and age, that remarkable thing, a truly original new Broadway musical. I want to thank you all for being here. I'd like to thank our audience and the people here at CUNY TV, our partners at CUNY, as well as the CUNY Department of Continuing Education and Public Programs. I hope you'll all join me in thanking the many people who have made The Drowsy Chaperone. <laughs>